0: Hi, Mary. How are you doing? You had a little weekend away, didn't you, last weekend?
1: I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Managed to get away for a few days. Long weekend in San Sebastian in Spain, which was yeah, really lovely. Nice to be off. I don't know if many of the listeners have been to San Sebastian, but it's a really, really nice vibe of mainly beach food and beer so what's not to like
0: nice yeah a bit of beach and a good a good sort of kickoff to the summer was that the kind of vibe bit sunny and everything kind of opening up
1: there yeah a bit sunny not fantastically warmer than the uk but slightly better so yeah beach was nice and yeah just going to the so they've got pinchos is their kind of speciality well it's not a dish but approach to eating i suppose i would call it so you go to a pinchos bar you you have a Pints pint of beer. You have a, a few, it's like mini tapas effectively, but they're very, very focused on their food in San Sebastian. So you're eating stuff like sea urchin, you know, just casually with a beer or pork cheek, beef cheek. All kinds of weird and wonderful delights, but yeah, really, really uh, nice way of just having an evening. So basically, the idea is you bar hop the whole the whole evening, try out different dishes in different places.
0: Yeah, sounds great. Sounds great. And I love the idea of kicking off the summer with a little little sort of weekend away somewhere nice. But wondering, Spanish? Did you manage to speak a little bit? Use a little bit of your new um, new skills?
1: A little bit, yeah. I did. I tried to. I tried to practice. My other half is a better Spanish speaker than I am, though. So uh, it's very tempting to always lean back on. What he's doing. But the other thing you've got in that area is it's in the Basque region. So you've also got Basque as as a a language. So all of the street signs, for example, are in both languages. All of the menus, the first version of the menu will be Basque, then Catalan, then, sorry, Castilian, then um, French, because it's really, really near the French border, then English. And the Basque language sounds really quite different to Castilian. So, but they all speak, I mean, they all speak Spanish. It is the official language. Although while we were there, there was a march. To try and make Basque the official language, so they obviously feel very strongly strongly about it.
0: Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Getting into all those little languages and regional differences that you do get across across Europe and stuff, and how so sort of how frustrating to invest like loads of time in learning Spanish or Castilian, and then you know you <laughs> still find that it's not kind of it doesn't get you all the way there in all these places, does it?
1: No, no, absolutely. But I suppose it's a it's a bit like coming to the UK and there's a, a London accent and a Scouse accent, and they're to us very very different. <laughs> And if you think of someone learning English, they're probably just impossible to know the difference. But yeah, it was a nice weekend jaunt. And Dan, you're about to jump on a train slightly less further afield.
0: Yes, that's right. That's right. PLSA conference this week, of course. So I'm literally just about to run out of here, jump on a train up to Edinburgh for a few days. So looking forward to that, maybe see some of the listeners, maybe see some of you up there, say hi, hopefully be great. Obviously the first one in person for a few years. I think there's going to be a lot of kind of pent up enthusiasm for a bit of bit of socialising. I'm not sure we'll remember how to do sort of small talk and in-person socialising or try and try and remember, <laughs> but that's, that's the big challenge. So, so there we go.
1: Nice. And you were actually at the last in-person version of that, weren't you? Dan? Yeah, I was. In I was. March, I was 2020.
0: Uh, yep, two, exactly. Two years ago. Yeah. So that, there we go. It's been it's been a while. And on the subject of um, in-person socializing, we have been kicking around a bit of an idea. We um, it's been great meeting people, uh, meeting listeners from the podcast and been out and about last month or so. So we had an idea of maybe trying to get some of our sort of community together for perhaps a few drinks in the summer
1: yeah absolutely so the date that we're looking at at the moment is 30th of june so so hold the date look out for a linkedin event or get in touch with us via email or, or other means if you're interested in, in joining us.
0: Yes, what we're going to do, we're going to invite all the guests, all the 100 guests we've had, uh, and we we'll invite all the listeners, maybe a few colleagues as well. We're going to probably be just booking a little area in a pub in Marlebone, nothing too fancy at all, just kind of a few a few tables in, in in a pub. But it'll be lovely to see people, absolutely fantastic if you can make it. Um, so yeah, 30th of June, we'll mention it again, but put it in the diary.
1: Absolutely. But for now, on with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: Hi, everybody. This week we are delighted to be joined by Naomi Lestrange, Managing Director at 2020 Trustees. Naomi, welcome.
1: Thank you. Welcome, Naomi. Why don't we start with hopefully an easy one? Could you give us a sense of your role and, and what it means to be the Managing Director at 2020?
2: Sure. Well, I split my role roughly 50 50 between professional trusteeship, which I absolutely love. And the running of the business, so that's everything from you know, the day to day management and the finance side. And I do the bulk of the recruitment as well. So it's quite full on, but I absolutely love it.
1: And how many how many strong are you these days?
2: We're up to sixty now, so it's a, yeah, good sized team. Good sized team and a
1: big sized team to recruit to also. So yeah, yeah indeed.
0: And on the professional trustee front, just give us a quick sense of the, the clients you work across, so roughly how many, what sort of investors you're looking at?
1: It's a good
2: spread across both. So I have nine schemes that vary. The smallest is seven million and the biggest is is several billion. And similar range for twenty twenty. So we cover all types of schemes, all types of sponsors, and a bit, really big range of sizes and, and everything else.
1: Excellent. And do you find, I suppose you've already answered the question a bit for yourself, but do different trustee directors tend to specialise with certain types of schemes, situations, sectors, or is it quite broadly spread?
2: It's a mixture. So some people have specific, say, covenant expertise, so they might be more likely to be involved in M&A or or distress scenarios. Some specialise in smaller schemes. There's a number with kind of risk transfer expertise and specialism. But also the bulk of our schemes We effectively always support them with the team. So we try to have a mix of backgrounds and skill sets
1: supporting each scheme, depending on what they need. Excellent. and I'm sure we'll get into more on that in a moment.
0: Yeah. And then just just, just quickly, before we get into our main conversation, then, what's one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV?
2: Well, you get a hint on my CV of, of what I like to do. But one exciting thing that I did was that I was in Russia and Latvia in September 91, just after the coup, so we were actually wow. in Latvia the day it got its independence and we got to sing the national anthem of Latvia to a room full of weeping people, which is in my top 10 life experiences. It was amazing.
1: Wow. What took you there?
2: I was a choral scholar at Cambridge. It was a Clare Choir tour, which had been arranged before the coup and they decided to go ahead. It was We were hosted by the official kind of Communist Party Tourist agency. It was the whole thing was utterly remarkable.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And has has singing with that? Well, I suppose that group or any other sort of choral group taken you all over the world, or absolutely.
2: Yes, I was lucky enough to be in the World Youth Choir for a couple of years. After that, so went to Argentina, Canada, and yeah, and I've been to Singapore, New Zealand, Australia. Yeah, I really have travelled the world.
1: Yeah, and do you still part of a
2: group? Yes, I sing in a choir that sings in cathedrals when they're on holiday. So we have a bit of a residency at St Paul's between Christmas and New Year every year, which is lovely to do. So, yeah, while the cathedral choirs are on holiday, so we sort of fill in. Oh, I see.
0: Oh, lovely. Cool.
1: Lovely to be in London around Christmas time. It's quite magical, really, isn't it? It is. St Paul's is just a remarkable place.
0: Yeah, it really is, isn't it? We'll have to put details in the show notes so listeners can can pop along and see you.
1: So, Naomi, 2020 is 40 years old this year, I believe, which is obviously quite a landmark. And I've seen, I'm sure some of the listeners have also seen various things on LinkedIn and that sort of thing, celebrating the 40 year anniversary. Really keen to understand from you what sort of conversations and reflections are happening across your colleague um, group.
2: I think the main reflections are what has changed over that period and what has stayed the same. So in terms of what has changed, I guess the scale is the main thing. So it started off with just two people back 40 years ago and, and grew gradually and then has accelerated yeah. in the last three years particularly. The other thing, I, I guess, is that it came from a base where there was a real focus on insolvency and distress. And over the last five years in particular, we've expanded out across the full range of schemes. So we've tended to start with the smaller schemes but now we really do cover you know, the largest of schemes, and the largest of sponsors and the most complex of, of scenarios. But in terms of what's the same, I think the two main things are the structure of the team. So from very early days, we had our structure with, with the trustee consultants supporting the trustee directors in their role, which I came to by accident in an, to an extent, but I wouldn't want to work any other way. It's really fantastic to have that support. And the other really is, I think, that energy and that kind of dynamism. So it was one of the earliest trustee businesses. It was doing different things. It was sort of leading the way. And that's, that kind of spirit is, is very much what 2020 is today.
1: And I suppose reflecting on the the actual pensions industry. So the focus of 2020, is, as you've just described, expanded over that time. But 40 years of evolution of the pensions industry, there must be quite a lot of different ways that trustees now operate regardless of how 2020 itself has has evolved? Are you having those sorts of reflections as well in terms of the wider industry dynamics?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest change, I suppose, is that professional trustees started off largely being individuals who were taking on the role sort of as they retired, probably, you know, one or two schemes. And I think certainly when I first saw professional trustees operating, which was largely when I was at the Pension Protection Fund at the time it it started off, I saw a lot of risk aversion and trustees thinking that not making a decision reduces risk. And I still see that as the biggest weakness in the trustee market, if I'm honest. But there has been a real shift over that time into individuals that will kind of make decisions and move things forward and not, you know, really challenge the advisors and not just be there to receive Ice. And I think that's a really, really important shift. That's you know, that's really accelerating now.
0: Yeah, I mean that, that's a really key point isn't it that kind of status quo bias and and, and being able to take the right decisions I, I guess one area we really wanted to come on to actually was the, the whole area of decision making so maybe we address that now I mean we, we've had several episodes where we've reflected on decision making and biases and those sort of things but what would be some of your top tips for good decision making and sort of common pitfalls as well to look out for
2: well, I, I trained as an executive coach, and there's a model that you use in coaching called the GROW method. And actually, I find in everything in life, the GROW method is really, really powerful. And the reason it's powerful is because it makes you walk through the steps rather than jumping to the O, which is the options, jumping straight to what the right. answer is. So G is for the goal, which is why are you doing this? So making sure you stop and think why you're doing something. The R is the reality, and that's the context. Where are you now? And I think going through those two things before you jump to the options is really, really important. And then the W is the what are you going to do? So making sure you pick up the actions and actually put into action whatever it is that you've decided so I don't I'm not often in a meeting needing to think that way because I guess I like to think you know the the boards I work on the decisions flow pretty well anyway but if you if you want to test you know going back to the why and the context I think will
1: always help you. I really like that and I it's interesting I've been speaking internally about a multi-step process to well to agree almost anything to be honest but you know strategic journey planning and as you said the the g r o and w are thinking yeah that maps really well onto what we were thinking so yeah i can see how you could then apply it to anything yeah
2: any conversation any decision you've got to make yourself it really works for and then even you know helping your teenagers (laughs) with their Uh own decisions
0: And I I can see that it is really important to get those first two there, because quite often a a sort of a valid criticism of consultants is you kind of spend a long time weighing things up and on the one hand, on the other, and it all gets too sort of long and waffly. And so a common thing is, look, just cut to the key points. What is the key stuff? So the temptation can be, like you say, to cut to the O or even cut to the W, like, right, this is just what we're going to do. Whereas what that framework is doing, it's not sort of Overworking the whole thing, but it's just saying, well, there are a couple of really important steps before you start talking about action-oriented stuff, which you just can't miss out, right?
1: Mm. I think you mentioned this already, Naomi. It's the trustees not unduly relying on advisors So don't just be told what to do, but actually really own those decisions and and any change to position that you that you have.
2: Yeah, particularly the why. So making sure that you're asking the the consultant the why if that's not obvious. Yeah, why stay? This my change?
1: Yeah. So turning that slightly on its head then, Naomi, are there any sort of common pitfalls that you often see across trustee groups, apart from maybe over-reliance on on advisors? I think that
2: over-risk aversion is is the biggest one of all. So Mm. I see that particularly around ESG, this feeling that if you stick with the crowd or do as little as possible, that that's going to be the safest option or that, you know, you need oodles of evidence for making any kind of change at all and I think there will be a point where actually for trustees they will realise that not acting is a bigger risk than acting. The other can be getting stuck into the details so you have to be quite careful with things like member cases you know if you the move to more anonymizing of decisions is really helpful there because you know in the past you'd quite often have trustee boards who knew the people involved and, you know, who were they, did they used to be married to and, and, and those things. You can get trustees spending too much time on things that aren't really important and not enough time on the bigger strategic decisions and moving things forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that's, that's where the trustee board needs to manage that carefully, but that's where advisors can also help, isn't it? Where keeping things at the right level, going into the detail when it's needed, but actually only when necessary rather than being sidetracked constantly so with your trustee director hat on you sit in board meetings and and obviously you're you're there to make decisions and to sort of facilitate good decision making within that group but with your managing director hat on you're managing a group of decision makers and I just wondered whether there were any reflections that you had on on that that dynamic really is it easier or harder when they're all expert decision makers
2: I think it's very similar I mean everything in the world is always about communication and relationships in my experience so if you build the right teams then you're going to have the right culture in the conversation people are not going to be scared to ask questions or or intervene which is really important obviously when you've built your own team you can (laughs) you can create that culture which makes that a bit easier and sometimes I come into trustee boards where the relationships are not that great or the trust between the sponsor and the trustee is has fallen away But actually, in my experience, it can be quite easy to rebuild that if you just try and create that kind of open-minded mindset. So not assuming the worst of the other side, but, but trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And I think, again, across pretty much everything, sort of sharing open communication just gives you that better basis. And once you're in that position... You have to be careful about things like you know who speaks first, who dominates the conversation, and making sure the people that are less likely to speak up are, are actually heard, because they often have different views. And obviously, the no stupid questions culture is absolutely vital. The absolute best questions, often to consultants as well, are from the lay trustees who sort of say, "Well, why are we, you know, what's this for? Why are you doing it?" And there's huge power in in those.
1: Yeah and certainly I've sat in meetings where yeah that the most difficult question is someone who you think you've just explained something and they say sorry I just don't understand it and you think oh how do I how else do I explain this it's obviously a real test of whether you understand the material properly but that's the one that catches you it's not the person who reads the FT every morning asking you about an FT article because if you know you're speaking to someone like that, you just read the FT that day, you know, to make sure that you're familiar with what they're going to ask you. But yeah, absolutely. And that's the most powerful one that actually you see lots of light bulb moments around the room when that one person had the guts to to ask the question that was probably on lots of people's lips.
2: Yeah. So I guess in terms of the room of experts, the bit that can be a bit more difficult is, you know, managing those who want to talk loads and sort of allowing people to say what they need to say, but to keep things moving and recognizing or trying to again create a culture where people don't have to say stuff for the sake of their voice being heard but only if it's actually moving the conversation on so that can be a challenge and occasionally you know you have to cut somebody off and you know that's when they're most likely to get offended but
0: yeah any good tips on how to do that well
2: I think you just kind of apologize when you do it and then if you know you might have to apologize privately afterwards if you really felt But, you know, generally people want to keep the meeting moving and they recognise how much of a slot you've got for each bit of the the meeting. So generally people do understand.
1: And just a quick question in terms of because I know different professional trustee firms work differently. Do the 2020 directors tend to be the chair of trustees or is it quite a mix across the position on the trustee board? I can picture someone who's quite used to being a chair of trustees finding it harder to stay quiet, for example.
2: Yeah, it, we have no particular policy on it. I think we're chairing about half our appointments. And actually, maybe it's slightly less. No, maybe it's more like a third chair, a third sole trustee, a third where we're sitting alongside other trustees. And certainly for me, it's it's a mix. And I I enjoy both. You know, I really enjoy sort of not being the chair and just being more free to kind of follow the conversation and, and interject just at the right moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah I was thinking it's probably a helpful experience to keep a balance because it means that you don't get too used to a certain role which means you're better able to adapt to different groups but I'm sure different different approaches suit different people so and every board is so different as well um, you know you get such an interesting mix which is why you know, the bit the bigger boards are are really interesting So should we pivot briefly to investment? This is, of course, an investment-focused podcast. And Naomi, with your experience as a a trustee director, we wondered whether there were any particular sort of investment principles that you've developed or that you've sort of adopted that you think are particularly important to follow.
2: I think the main thing is keeping your flexibility and your open-mindedness. So you need to understand why you're in a particular strategy, but also be prepared to flex away from it. So not get to attached to a particular investment and it, there's a similar point where you know where performance is is dipping off is you know not kind of riding that wave and being being worried if performance has gone down but go back to the fundamentals of why you
1: selected that that manager in the first place yeah and I suppose I should have, of course, in my question, acknowledged the grow principles, which which would apply here as, as well as to any other decisions. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Thinking through investment strategies and ideas and asset classes and things that you've sort of seen over the years and, and even ways that um, schemes have approached investing, any sort of general observations on things that have worked or not worked, either generally or specifically for, for in the context of the schemes that have done them?
2: I think the... The kind of herd mentality is a, is a tricky one. So, you know, I think we have seen a lot of schemes going into things because other people are and coming out of them because other people are. And again, it it is about, you know, sticking to the fundamentals of why you made that decision in the first place. So one thing that concerns me this year is with the energy spike, particularly if you're in UK equities, There'll be quite a big divergence depending on whether people have got energy stocks or not. And I think particularly if you made a conscious decision on environmental grounds to choose managers that have probably got lower exposure to that, there'd be a a risk that you might just punish them for that, which would be very, you know, very illogical. So it's sort of coming back to are they doing what you ask them to do and are they delivering good enough performance, even if you're, they're maybe not exactly tracking the market because you didn't appoint them to track the market. Similarly, if you did appoint them to track the market and they've outperformed, why have they done that? So be ready to look underneath rather than just
1: at the blanket performance. That's a really interesting one. I I know that groups that I've worked with have battled a bit with is It's very easy to sort of assume that, well, all outperformance is good. And actually, if it's not what they were trying to do, then why did it happen? It can't have happened for structural reasons that mean they will always outperform and therefore you might expect it to reverse at some point. I think that's that's a really always a really interesting conversation that I've come across.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think at the moment there are going to be lots of those conversations happening, right? Just because the Q1 this year performance, not just Q1, the whole of this year to date, the performance has been so, there's been so much dispersion among what's been going on, you know, tech versus energy. The difference is just absolutely huge. So I've, I've been finding that a little bit with some of the schemes I work with is that you've got some really big underperformances happening. Let's not beat around the bush. And thinking through those in a sort of, logical way to try and get to the points you exactly point you're saying are they doing what we hired them to do is this expected is it within the perimeter and and try and take decisions on that it's you know it's it's one thing to say it It is a difficult thing to do in practice when a manager is underperforming don't you think
2: i don't know it doesn't feel difficult for me because for me it's always about what did they say they were going to do and are they doing that and then is the overall performance good enough because you know generally we're long term investors so you look back over a longer period in the past you know did they do what they said they were going to do in the past are they doing what they said they were going to do now and you know how does their performance compare with what we needed them to do what we assumed they would do because you know most managers outperformed those assumptions over the last 5 years they might say well that's you know that's good enough and they've underperformed the market but you know it has been an unusual market so particularly those that have been looking at at sort of you know long-term value of have struggled but maybe that's what you wanted them for and they've probably done the job you needed of them even if (laughs) even if it looks like they've underperformed so it's coming back to why did you have them there then? Why did you pick them now? Does it still make sense? Does that style still look like it should work for the job that it's doing in the portfolio or not?
1: Yeah. And I think it is always, I mean, of course, an investment manager managing a fund will usually manage against a market-based benchmark or an absolute benchmark, depending on the, the mandate. And of course, that's what they have to manage to because they are not aware of all of the other assets that the pension scheme holds, but the specific role they have in your strategy. And what, yeah, as you say, Naomi, what we expect from them from a sort of strategic return perspective, well, actually, if they've, if the whole market blew the lights out and they underperformed the market by 10%, but they still outperformed the the returns that we needed to get to our journey plan, actually, we're laughing. It really doesn't matter if we could have done better.
2: Yeah, and particularly looking forward, would you expect that that style to deliver now because obviously we've had you know the first quarter and a bit of this year and the rest of this year won't be the same as that and and nor will next year so you know you you just can't assume that there are a few things like when when you have a a fall across the board have they preserved value if they're a dgf and that was what they were looking to do for example i think that can be quite instructive if they've protected on the fall side but many of the other short-term blips in either direction i think you have to think about you know your your long-term goals as an investor and try and look through that but not not always easy to do but that's the position i always come from and that's you know when i when i want to sack managers is when i think they're shifting from what they said they were going to do and i that they don't believe in themselves that's when i get worried is when it feels like they're you know, making a shift for a reason that goes against
1: the job that they were there to do. Yeah. So the way you've just described that, Naomi, made it sound quite easy. So uh, in terms of sticking to your guns enough, I, I suppose you are, of course, a very experienced trustee that's been doing this for a long time. I wondered if you could now perhaps reflect on, and I've, I I realise you're biased in this, but could perhaps reflect on the sort of professionalisation of trusteeship. Obviously, as you said, when 2020 was first formed it was a very small group of people. The idea of a professional trustee was obviously less far less widespread. These days it's far, far more popular. I wondered if you could reflect on what that sort of means for decision making and what the right balance could be.
2: I mean certainly we we would never wish to sort of denigrate a good lay trustee, a good member nominated trustee, a good employer selected trustee. I think the main advantage of a professional trustee is just that there's so much to know now. Uh, you know, across within investment, there's huge amounts, and then you have, to, you know, there's everything else that you need to understand as well. And I think that is the main advantage that you get to see across a number of schemes. So, I mean, LDI is a, a great example. I think it takes absolutely everybody three goes to understand. LDI conceptually it just messes with your head and it just means that once you've got over that hurdle you don't need to go through that again and then you're much better able to support articulating it you know for the other trustees if that's a decision that they were needing to take and you get similar things particularly you know as you go towards buy and buy out those feel very very big and scary too if you haven't come across that before. The other advantage, particularly for a firm like ours, is we've got every expertise internally. So if you're worried about something, there's always somebody that you can just ring up that you know hasn't got any kind of agenda and you can just check in with. So I think that is that is the main advantage, really. And again, you can get that that rigour around the governance, which I think is increasingly important. It seems odd in a way that you know we're running these multi-billion funds with people who may not be professionals, which you would never dream of doing with a with a company of a similar size. So yeah. I do think it's inevitable that progression. However, having said that, you know, the value of a great lay trustee who knows the membership, who can you know ask those questions and can see how members might react to a particular event or decision. You know, there's huge, huge value in that and huge knowledge of the businesses that that you're in that you might not have, for example. So I think that balance, you know, is hugely powerful.
1: Yeah, and certainly we we see, I mean, I think there's probably lots of different studies you could reference here, but references to sort of regulatory, I mean, overload is probably how a lay trustee would view it and sort of various company side saying we expect lots of trustees to stand down or reflections on the difficulty of appointing member nominated particularly trustees in the pension sphere certainly gets quite well known and, and quite widespread yeah though I
2: do think there's too much focus on on risk for trustees because I think if you're sitting on a as a lay trustee on a board alongside a professional you know your personal risk is very low and I think trustee balls that make the worst decisions actually are the ones that are worrying about their own risk rather than on their on their members outcomes so that whole narrative I think is is actually deeply unhelpful you just need to have the the advice and the and the support and ideally a professional trustee that can help you see why the governance makes sense rather than getting bogged down in it
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really really interesting. And it's building on the point a little bit, I guess the role of trustees generally in pension schemes has changed hugely over any period of time you look at really, but particularly the 40 years of 2020 trustees or, or your time in as a trustee as well. And, and I always think that certainly on the investment side, you know, trustees now are required to sort of be risk managers, asset allocators, fund selectors, oftentimes involved in the actual fund administration as well kind of thing, moving money around and those sort of things. Do you kind of recognize that huge growth in complexity of the, of the, of the investment piece and, and how, how, how do you deal with it, basically? I mean, what, what do you think are good, good approaches to handling it?
2: Absolutely. I mean, there's huge increase in complexity in kind of every sub area i guess one thing is that actually every individual area is probably less complex than you think so you know there's a whole new load of three letter acronyms but for example when you first step from a smallish scheme to a bigish scheme you think it's going to be enormously different and it really isn't it's the same sorts of decisions coming out so the first thing is having the right advisors who Will explain things to you in a way that you can understand, not try and kind of baffle you.
0: Mary and I nodding furiously at that point, obviously. I'm very, very <laughs> much agreeing with you on that, needless to say. But yeah, right, advisors, absolutely couldn't agree more. Sorry, sorry, carry on.
2: Yeah, and then focusing on what's what's important. So you cannot, as a trustee, be on top of every single detail, you cannot fully, fully understand every single nuance. And depending on the size of the scheme, I think having flexible teams helps. So we see an increasing trend where they'll appoint a firm, but they might want a different person for the investment subcommittee than from the main committee. So to get that specific investment expertise, for example, or having you know a number two on the scheme that you can check in with who's got some of that expertise. But I, I certainly generally find that, you know, that it's rare for there to be a conversation that you can't, follow all that you can't be on top of really quite quickly so get those advisors around you that you're not scared to ask the the stupid question that isn't and make sure you ask those questions and make sure you understand the why of what's going on and use committees well and yeah i think you can find your way through everything really
0: Yeah, well, that's a great little list there. Was it's use advisors, understand the why, use committees well, stay on top of it, but don't get totally dragged into the weeds of every little tiny thing. I think that's a huge amount of experience coming through there.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Naomi. The final area of focus that we wanted to talk about today is, depending who you ask, it's D and I, I and D, D E I. Lots of two to three letter acronyms there, but the way we would describe it is diversity, equity, and inclusion. I wondered if you could reflect on. Briefly, why it matters. I think it's fairly well known that it's important. Fairly well accepted that it's important. But why it matters, where you see we we've got to in this in this industry, and what needs to happen next.
2: As you say, I think the case for diversity leading to better decisions is absolutely made, and I think there's just no no doubt about that. An area we've sort of touched on where I really see that issue and and hear it from others is around ESG and responsible investment where i think that you know i've heard it said that lack of diversity is, is the biggest barrier to making progress in relation to climate change in particular and from my experience that yeah you know, that can be true that if you have a group that is completely non-diverse then they are much more likely to have the same view on a topic and also to have that risk averse view that i sort of touched on earlier and i think that is a huge huge issue clearly it's not everybody but and those trends are without question true in in bulk so in terms of where we've got to i think that there's some significant change happening uh, you know a while back the magic 17% which seems to be the proportion of women in most scenarios in the world through of trusteeship and it was the same proportion of professional and and lay and i think the one step that can be taken is is in relation to when you're looking to appoint a trustee if your first question is always about your experience as a trustee then by definition you're fishing in the same pond and you're not going (laughs) to get much change so we while experience is clearly something that you know is relevant to trusteeship there is undue focus i think on experience and that's professional and lay trustees so thinking about how you recruit You know, companies when recruiting their own and member-nominated trustees tend to look in the same places, kind of finance and HR, and couch the communications in a way that focuses, again, on the risks and responsibilities rather than what the individual can bring and what they can gain from it. I think that kind of a shift to see how different voices, you know, how valuable they could be would really help. As regards the industry, Firstly, we need to be measuring all characteristics, and I think across investment as well, we're really only measuring gender, and that's not good enough. Really across the world, it's complicated because every culture is different, etc. But in pensions in the UK, we have to look at recruitment from the bottom because we've got a really good mix of people in 2020. But it's no good for us to just go and poach the best diverse talent. You know, we need to create an industry where where people of all backgrounds are interested in working. It's not the easiest when it's sort of, you know, pensions is a word that makes everyone fall asleep. But if you can get into schools, get people doing properly paid work experience, you know, apprenticeships, things like that, we absolutely have to have to do that, to, you know, and make sure we're measuring across all those characteristics. I think disability is maybe the next one that, Not a lot's happened on yet. So I'm interested to see where we can go with that as well.
1: Yeah, I've certainly we've talked about that internally, that that's, it sort of feels in a way that you shouldn't be tackling one at a time. And clearly, we're not because it's not like we're done on gender or done on race. But it does feel like there's sort of one big focus, not quite once a year, but it's sort of okay, so what's the next thing to bring into the mix of characteristics that we are very, very actively trying to to help in terms of diversity and of of course inclusion comes first, which is why um one client that I work with has decided actually it shouldn't be D and I because inclusion has to come first, which is the reason it's I and D for that group, which I, I really liked. But D and I is just so widely used that you sort of slip back into that, I think. But so Naomi, as we start to towards wrapping up, what are your top priorities over the next 12 months? I'll start to
2: feel like a, a stuck record to an extent, but ESG is still at the forefront for me. So, we've done a, a huge amount internally, and I want to continue to push. So, some of that is around data, you know, making sure the managers and the consultants are really challenging and not just accepting what they're told that the, the managers can produce. I'm also worried about the models and whether the sorts of models we're creating around ESG are actually going to either you know, create bigger problems if we're just too focused on carbon pricing, for example, and that can lead to some really poor outcomes in the models, which could drive terrible behaviours. So that that's one area. And speaking out about it even more is is another. And then beyond that for the for my team, it's really continuing to maintain our fantastic culture as we grow has always been my priority and will continue to be in the coming coming year, you know, making sure we support the team, get that hybrid working balance right, and continue to have a, a team that's, you know, firing all cylinders
1: and, and loving their job. Excellent. Sounds like very good goals.
0: <laughs> and just quickly on the hybrid working thing, actually, because that's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, how, how are you how are you finding that for trustee boards generally, as well as, I suppose, your team is a sort of slightly different angle on it, isn't it? But how, how do you see that kind of working?
2: I think many boards will end up roughly 50 in terms of Physical meetings and and virtual meetings. A number of boards have been a bit slow to go back, so you know it's fewer fewer than half of my schemes have had a physical meeting yet. And yeah. I suppose you know I live quite remotely, so it's not always going to be me that's driving the you know the desire to be to be in that place. But I think I think that shift will be hugely beneficial as long as we make sure that we do get that mix right because there can be huge value to a very focused virtual meeting but equally some of the relationship side can't be done in the same way things like strategy discussions i think yeah there are various things that are better done in person so we'll continue to flex and adjust i think
1: naomi we'll, we'll start wrapping up now so what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this episode
2: I'd say if you're bored with people talking about ESG, it probably means you're not sufficiently concerned about it. That would probably be my, uh, my number one
1: takeaway. Nice. Short and sweet and, and to the point, which I suppose is exactly what you're trying to achieve there. So, Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah well, that, that's quite a spicy take in some ways, isn't it? Because it's sort of almost become a bit of a cliche that people kind of say, oh, yeah, no, another, another presentation on that, yet yeah, more on that sort of thing. But that, you're deliberately being quite provocative there with that. But I, I guess that's what you're trying to, what you're trying
2: to do. Yeah, we're not moving fast enough at the moment we're on track not to have a planet we can live on. And and I think we need to take that seriously and be part of the solution, not the problem.
0: Naomi, then what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: I think it's mainly that you have more influence than you think. So you think that you're only a small voice, but actually not that many investors say anything at all. So if you have something strong and firm to say they will hear you it may not lead to direct action but it will something will linger in the mind and you know you really can have that influence
1: yeah I suppose it's a bit like people saying I won't bother voting because my vote doesn't count for much but actually if everyone thought that no one would vote so yeah
2: yes but even more powerful than that because you can actually say specific things to specific people so Mm. what you put in your contract can be really powerful for example or Mm. you know what around asking for data will influence what people build and that will influence what actually happens
0: yeah that's absolutely a great point, isn't it? Because when you're talking about this, everyone sort of jumps to the idea that your influence as an investor is just buying and selling stuff. And then it can be quite easy to say, well, well, actually, that doesn't have that much influence either because you just sell it to someone else and everything carries on as normal. You sell your secondary market equity and nothing really changes. But like you're saying, Amy, that there's all sorts of things that investors do almost without thinking, you know, draw up a contract, guidelines, the reporting they're getting in, all that kind of stuff where you can make changes that will Especially in the aggregate, if lots of people are doing it, will will influence change. So I, I couldn't agree more with that. It's really, I think, it's really, really well said. Absolutely.
1: And Naomi, before we let you go, do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Yes. Well, one book that I think is
2: absolutely fantastic is called *Willful Blindness* by Margaret Heffernan. I don't know if you know that. It's about how people make decisions how people how nations and individuals walk blindly into terrible decisions the examples in it are fantastic and it really makes you think so that that's a great one obviously invisible women I'm sure people have mentioned before Caroline Crowder Perez. if you're a woman you need to be prepared to be
1: very angry if you read it but I, <laughs> I would suggest that everybody especially men read mm-hmm. it We've had it before, but I think it's powerful to have it again. So we'll certainly link to that one in the show notes.
2: And in terms of podcasts, I listen to loads, lots of comedy ones, lots of serious ones. I do like How Do You Cope, which is a a Radio 5 live one about kind of mental health and things. But a couple of comedians host it. And there's a really fantastic one recently with Lem Cisse, the poet, who is just an amazing individual. So I enjoy that. And I
1: also enjoy the Sue Perkins one. Oh, nice, yeah, fantastic. Well, a f- few recommendations there in slightly different areas, which is, which is great.
0: Yeah, I always think it's really interesting when you get two or more guests who recommend the same book, actually. It's almost really good to have that kind of double recommendation because straight away people are like, and I, I definitely need more comedy in my podcast listening as well. I, I, w- I will say that. So I am gonna get straight Dan's on to- Dan's very serious
1: that. in his podcast listening.
0: Yeah, it, it is a bit too serious. <laughs> Anyway, Naomi, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolutely great conversation. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And great to see you, Beth. Great to see you, Naomi. Thanks for joining us. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. But join us again next week for another episode. Take care.
2: Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment
1: or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.